Good morning. My name is Gino. It's a privilege to be here with you guys again. Uh, I just want to thank you as a family for welcoming my biological family into the fold the last few weeks. We haven't missed a beat with feeling like we're part of the, the kingdom with you guys. So thank you for your, your love for Jesus and your love for others in showing us that. Today we get to talk about family, and I'm excited about that. We're in this series called Be the Church. We're talk, we've talked about the gospel, which is what makes us be the church, if you will, the power of the gospel that changes and transforms hearts, and the purpose of the gospel. The purpose of the gospel is to bring about restoration, we've said over the last few weeks. If you've been with us, or if this is your first time out, or this is just a, a recap of it. And that there, there is not only in the purpose of the gospel, there's a plan for the gospel. The, the gospel plan is that by making disciples, by, by seeing new people grow up in the faith, come to faith and be transformed by the gospel, we see a picture of restoration occur. And the more and more widely that spreads, the more of God's glory is seen on this earth until the day when Christ returns, sets things right, makes all things new. And we have total restoration at that, that time. But today we're going to talk about identity. Caesar talked about the identity as being a missionary last week. And we're going to continue talking about identity because identity is, is integral. It's so important because everything that you do is a reflection of who you believe you are. Whatever you believe is true about yourself will be displayed in how you live your life. Your actions always reveal your identity. Now we looked at these verses over the last few weeks from Matthew 28, and I want to take a look at them right now because it really solidifies this idea of identity. Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, I'm going to read for you. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. The one thing that Jesus asks of his church before he leaves is that they would make disciples. That's the the one thing that he asks of us. But what is the, the key activity that he asks us to do in the process of making disciples from that passage? What is it? Okay, go, teach, obey. There's a big one that's being missed. Yeah, baptism. We're to baptize people. Not just grabbing them off the street and dunking them in the water, but we're, we're to baptize them because baptism is a display of identity. It's huge. It's all about celebrating the identity that you have. And you you may or may not see it in that passage. I want to show you another passage where this is really, really quite evident. With Jesus, with his baptism, in Matthew 3, 16 and 17. I believe it's up there. I want you to listen as I read. Listen for the identity statement in this passage. And it's speaking of Jesus. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened up to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, 
with whom I'm well pleased. What was the identity that was declared of Jesus when he was baptized? My beloved son. He was, he was called the Father, God's beloved son. The whole trinity is in that picture there. The Spirit descending like a dove, Jesus the Son. And the Father declares something to be true of Jesus. He says, this is my son, he's my family. I'm well pleased with him. Was that identity something that occurred for Jesus when he went into the water and came out? Or was that something that was true of him before he was baptized? Does that make sense, that question? So it was true. It was true of him. So the baptism didn't change him. It just declared what was already true about him. And that's what, what's coming up in a couple of weeks as I just listened to the announcements. Um, there's going to be a baptism. There's going to be baptisms. That's similar for us that when we believe the gospel, when we've been transformed, we have a brand new identity given to us. And it's true of us before we go into the water. Going into the water just symbolizes that we're identified with the death of Christ going under the water and coming up into new life. That we're part of the family. But those things are true about us before the actual going into the water. There's nothing super spiritual about the water. You know, Some people think that that changes you or something. It just is declaring publicly what has already happened in your heart through believing the Gospel. And that's, that's true because this identity statement that I read earlier from Matthew 28, I want to go over it. And you can see that picture on the, on the screen there. A disciple, the D in the middle is for disciple if you can see it. A disciple, that's an identity statement. A disciple is someone who's been changed by belief in the gospel. And they're baptized. They're declaring a new identity. And that new identity is, is this. When you're baptized into the name of the Father, you're declaring something about yourself. You're declaring that you're a son or daughter of the Father. And that gives you an identity of being family to one another and to Him. Does that make sense? You've heard this before, I know. When you're baptized into the name of the Son, you declare Jesus as your King and that you're His servant. So you have an identity as being a servant. So a disciple has an identity of being someone who is learning to be family. Because that's what a disciple means, is learner. Learning to be family. Learning about their identity as a servant. And when you're baptized into the name of the Holy Spirit, you declare that the Spirit is the sending power for you into the world to make disciples. And you're identifying as a missionary. So a disciple is someone who's, who is a family of missionary servants or a fa- part of a family of missionary servants. And today we get to cover this identity of family. With God as our Father, we're His family. You know, and I want to be really careful when I, when I share this with you that I'm not just trying to give you something that's new and cool, sounds really good, and kind of slip something by you. So I don't want to just teach from that one passage because that tells us everything we need to know, in a sense, about being family and missionary and servants as disciples. I want to show you from another passage because I want you to see that this is rooted in Scripture. That family is close to the Father's heart. It's the language that he uses. So we're going to look at 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, verses 9 through 12. These are some of uh, my favorite verses in the entire Scripture. 
First Peter chapter 2, verses 9-12 through 12 says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you, as sojourners and exiles, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So you need to know a little bit about this passage to understand exactly what, what Peter's saying. The, the, the background here is that Peter is talking to a dispersed people. They've spread out. A lot of them were, were Jews who became Christians that came to faith, and they are dispersed all throughout Asia Minor. They're enduring great suffering, and actually they're about to endure even greater suffering, suffering that had not been seen in the world up until that point. And Peter offers them great hope. He offers them great hope through the truth of the gospel. He spends, most of the, he spends the first chapter and most of the second chapter up into these verses telling people, reminding them of the great, great work of the gospel. Who God is and what He's done through Christ and now who they are. He's reminding them of who they are because of what God's done. And because of this, He calls them the chosen representatives. God's chosen representatives. He's reminding them that Jesus is sinless, perfect life, and His sin-atoning death and His death-conquering resurrection has purchased them an entirely new identity. That they're a new people. That the Gospel doesn't just change where you end up going in eternity, but it changes how you act and be now. And he wants to remind them that because it gives them hope. And I hope you see that. That the Gospel isn't just something that we look to for the future, though we do. For when, wow, you know, when, when t- times are tough, that, that, wow, I can't wait till Jesus comes back. That is true. That's good. That's right. That's a right thing to think and say. But the Gospel so changes us in the midst of terrible circumstances, like this broken world, that we, we have a way that we can live now because it's that big. We often forget, though, who we are. And these people that Peter's writing to, we're forgetting who they are. It reminds me of a story that I once read or heard um, of a girl who was an orphan and adopted into a family, brought over to this country. And she continued to... She, she was given this, this room with all these toys and she never touched them. She wouldn't touch them. And then at dinner time, she'd eat everything really quickly, eat till she was full, and then she'd stuff her pockets with any kind of seconds or or leftovers that she could get. And this went on for a long time before their parents just started, they started asking her why, and they finally just sat her down and said, you know, you're our daughter. You're, You're loved and you're accepted. We love you. And all of this is yours. You're no longer an orphan. She was living like an orphan because anytime she touched anything that wasn't hers in the orphanage, she could get beat up or yelled at. And when, when she ate, she didn't know if she was going to get another meal, so she'd hold on to everything. And now she was brought into this new family where she could have everything that she would need or want, and she was still living out of that old identity. And I think we do the same thing. 
You know, I said earlier that identity is important because who you are dictates how you live. And all of Scripture, you'll find this to be true. You'll find that there's always a reminder, or almost always a reminder, in these letters from Paul or Peter, there's always a reminder where, where they start off saying, this is who God is, and this is what God's done, and now here's who you are, and then here's what you do. They never start out with, would you stop that? Stop sleeping with your stepmom or your mother-in-law, or whoever it is. like Stop doing these things. He always roots it in who God is, what He's done, and who you are because of that. Isn't that amazing to you? I mean, as a, as a parent, that's amazing to me because there's lots of times when I just say, would you, cut, would you cut that out? Would you just stop that? Not to you. You're perfect. But to the other three, <laughs> the other three, I say that. And I, and I wonder for you, we're family. We can be honest here. How do you motivate others to change? Whether, whether it's b- other believers, Christians in your, in your life group, your missional community, when they confess that they're struggling with a sin, what is your response? Would anybody be willing to share? What, what have you seen? Maybe what have you seen other people do? Not you. You wouldn't do that. That's true. I know I've, I've done that. Responded in, in anger or frustration out of something. What about... Um, have you ever just been in a group, or maybe you've done this yourself, where someone says something and you just give them some verse that's like on a coffee mug, it's a Christian verse on a coffee mug or on a t-shirt, you know, like, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, or whatever it is, and it's like, that's true and that's good, but is that really good news to that person at that time? You're like, you just piled on more law for me. The thing is that we often don't remind people of, of who they are because of what God's done. We tend to go right towards fixing whatever we think the issue is. And, and if we, we start with the identity, like Paul does and Peter does in, in their letters, that God does in creation, first there's God. That's, that's the first thing. In the beginning there was God. He's all that was. And then He acts. He creates things. And now you have creation and an identity out of that. If we take people back to reminding them of their identity when it would be so much easier to live in a transparent way. If in spite of if someone shared something that they're struggling with anger or they're going onto websites that they shouldn't be looking at or whatever it is and they're met with, well, you know what, you just got to try harder because essentially that's what we're saying when we say, I got a verse for that. But if we remind them of who they are because of what God's done, then maybe it's not so much that we get to tell them, you've got to stop doing that, though they should. But you get to stop doing that because you can. That's that's the power of the Gospel. And reminding people of who they are changes them. And if it's someone who isn't a believer, guess what? You get to tell them of their identity too, in a loving way. And I can't tell you how many times in our home we've gotten to tell our kids, you know, you, you can't change. Because this is who you are. You're born a sinner. You're not going to obey us. Even though you want to, it's hard. But guess what? There's hope for you. Because I can't do it either. And I have to trust in the finished work of Christ to do that. That He paid for that sin that you just committed, son. And He's he's wanting you in relationship to change who you are so that you would get to live a different way. Because even when you want to, you don't always do it. We get to help people go from being ashamed about what they've done to seeing that they can actually turn from it. And there's power in that. 
That's, that's the gospel identity is so huge in that in a practical way, when we believe what God says of us to be true, we're changed. And nothing can alter it. And we go from have-tos to get-tos. That's, that's, God's that good. That's what He wants for you. So let's look at family in this passage. In 1 Peter 2, the first, the first verse. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. He calls these people and us a chosen race. And that, that means family. You see, He's speaking to people that are dispersed of all different ethnicities and backgrounds. And he says, you're a chosen race. You're one race. What? We're not one race. We're, we're different people, different backgrounds. He doesn't even look like me. And, he's, and, and Peter's saying, no, you're, you're one family. You're all made in the image of God. And those who are part of the family of God have been reconciled to the Father. In a sense... Everyone, whether they're a believer in Christ, a follower of Jesus or not, they're all made in the same image of God. And in a sense, they're part of the family, but they're not that chosen family that Peter's talking about. They're like the, the estranged family member that doesn't show up for the different family gatherings because they haven't been reconciled to dad. But they still have an inherent value and, and worth because of who they are. Followers of Jesus are reconciled to the Father and are family. Are they blood-related? It reminds me of a story um, when we were living in Philadelphia. A guy in my neighborhood um, really struggled with the pressure of his family and their religious background was putting on him. He was struggling with drugs, still is to this day, but came, came to profess faith, whether it's True, I, I, it's not for me to judge, but I know that he was struggling getting out of his family and being with the rest of us. He spent tons of hours in our house and with other people in our, in our missional community, spending time together. And one day, he just walked over and he said to me, he's like, you know, I'm wondering, you know, that even though I have this biological family that's my family, I'm thinking maybe family doesn't have to be blood. That, that maybe you guys are really my family. And I thought... Well, wow, that is some pretty deep theology from a guy, you know, just didn't really know too much, just professed faith. And he walked off. About five minutes later, I see him running down the block right at me, and he goes, hold on, Gino, wait. I was wrong. We are blood family because it was Christ's blood that was spilled for us, and we're all saved because of that. I was like, man, this, wow. That's, that's good. We're one race, and we were purchased by blood and we're united by blood and it's Jesus's blood. The church is a chosen race, Peter says. The called out ones were God's family. We're his children who are adopted and fully accepted and loved. And we don't do good works so that we can be justified. It's because we are justified that we do good works. See, when I believe the gospel, I know I have a perfect father who loves and accepts me, not because of what I've done, but because of what Christ has done. And if I don't believe the gospel, if I don't believe that's true, then I'll try to find approval and acceptance in anything else, in, in other people, in my coaches, in my friends, in, in a community or a sports team. 
or, the, or someone who failed you. You'll find your identity in a failed relationship. You'll look for anyone to give you your identity and you'll prop them up as a functional savior. To a, as long as they affirm and accept you, you'll be okay. Yet they'll, that when you're failed by them, you're devastated. And believe me, they, they all will fail you. Every one of them will fail to deliver the love and acceptance that the Heavenly Father gives. I have a really... I'm sorry, I always get a little emotional when I talk about my buddy Jordan. Sorry. <laughs> Just thinking about him. So, when we, we have a, a really good friend who's... Um, he's kind of like a son to me, though I would be extremely young to have had him. But it is biologically possible. Um, he came into our community through some other relationships because at 19 years old he was homeless Um, he had a lot of anger but some guys in our in our missional community just brought him into their apartment took care of him he still lives there this is years later but he's now a fully functioning member of the family when he came in he was angry and bitter and as we heard his story um, Jordan Jordan had a, a rough life you know his, his mom and dad both died when he was really young. He was sent off to boarding school. was basically a ward of the state. Um, his rest of his family really didn't want to accept him except for his uncle, and his uncle died. So Jordan was homeless, had some faith in God, and actually had spent some time in college trying to go to a Christian college, but had to drop out because of all these other things and ended up where the point where he was sleeping on the couch of the dorms with some of his friends from school until the administrator said, you're not a student here, so you have to leave. Um, That's a tough one for for me. But fortunately, he came into our our family. And um, as we started to talk to him, I started realizing that that he, he was so angry with God because of what had happened in his life, and he hadn't really accepted the fact that God was his father. Because his dad wasn't there, so God let him down. And as he came to believe this, he, he believed it in such a way that, that he professed um, faith and asked, he requested to be baptized, and I got to baptize him. Um, we spent a lot of time with him. He's, he's working and, and self-sufficient in a lot of ways. But the greatest thing is that he says, you know, I, I, I know where my family is, and I, and I know who my dad is, and, and it's God. And he, he doesn't forsake me. He will not deny me. And one, one day, he sent me a text message. And he said, you know, I'm, I'm 20 years old now. And I think it's time for me to learn how to drive. Um, you think maybe you could help me with that? And I just shot him a text back and said, yeah, man, we're, that's what family does. And I still have it in my phone because it's just so dear to me after all that time. It says, all, he wrote back to me and says, family, dot, dot, dot. That's all I've ever wanted. See, God's family is able to reach out to people who are hurting and lost because we have a perfect Father who loves us so perfectly that expending energy or your resources for that is is nothing compared to the, the infinite riches that the Father has loved you with. We're family. Now I know that for some of us, when I, when I say we're family, that brings up some stuff that you don't really want to sort out right now. You know, family, you might have, you hear that and it's not super encouraging to know that you're a family. You're like, you know what, I've been trying to run away from my family. Because of all the baggage that we've attached to it, family isn't really great. And when you say that God is your father, you're like, look, you don't know my dad. I, I, I get it. 
In a way, I get it. And then there's others, uh, others of you who had a really good upbringing where you were loved and, and cherished and cared for and disciplined and taught. And when you, when you hear family, you get the warm fuzzies. That's good news for you. But I want to tell you that your broken family, your failed father, the one who hurt you or who didn't do right by you, it's not the father that I'm talking about. And your perfect father, who maybe is still with you, still guiding and teaching you, as great as he was or is, the best that he can do is point you to the heavenly father. I take great encouragement in that as a father myself. I don't have to be perfect. I need to point them to the one who is perfect. God is your father. And this means that in Christ you are known and you're loved. He's your creator. He's accepted and cared for you. He knows you intimately. Regardless of what you've done or what you do, you're loved. It's amazing. It also means that you're forgiven. You're forgiven for what you've done and what you might do. You're given Christ's righteousness through faith in the Gospel. See, family, family's people that you don't have to wear masks around. Do you know what I mean by that? Family is the people that you watch the football game in your underwear with, you know? I'm not advising you to do that in your missional community. I'm just saying, there's no shame, man. In, the, in, in Genesis, the beginning before sin, what were Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed. That means that they were fully exposed. It's not just a statement about nudity. It's saying that their hearts were laid bare before one another and before God, and there was no shame because they truly knew who they were. Image bearers of the perfect God. But we, we deal with sin. So we put up masks and we hide. We hide and so people won't really know us. We try to project an image of who we want them to think we are. And then, you know, as you spend more time rubbing up against each other, they start seeing, well, that's, that's not who Gino is. I thought Gino was someone totally different. You don't have to hide because you're already known. And you can also, as family, you get to love one another through correction. Because you know that you're family. I can't, I can't stop being my children's father, regardless of what happens in the future, from either side. I'm always going to be their father. So with that as the baseline, anything that happens is only built on that. So you don't, you don't get to run away because someone in your missional community hurt your feelings. It's not how family does it, is it? They talk about it. That's how we function. We get to be accepted not because of what we do, but because of who God is and who he's made us. So I'm at work one day, and my cell phone rings. And I, I recognize the number. It's a, a good friend, a brother from uh, the neighborhood who has, a, you know, just a, a lot of issues in his life. Um, so I pick it up. What's happening, man? This is what he says. She wants out and she's here. And, and I'm telling you, there's like six different directions this conversation can go because I know this guy well enough that I'm not sure what he means. So come to find out that he's referring to a girl who's about, I think at the time, about 18, who our missional community had been praying for for almost a year, I would think, at that time. Um, 
because she had gotten involved in drugs and prostitution at about 16 years old, maybe younger. She's from our neighborhood. She knew this guy and his family. He knew her from when she was a kid. But there's so much strain in what has happened in the relationships and the families there that he's not really even sure if her coming around is going to be accepted by other people and if she's going to be in danger by being there. So he calls me and he says, she wants out. What are we going to do? I said, just as an aside, I have no idea, okay? I just want to tell you that. Like, I don't know. I don't even know what, like, social services would tell you you do in these situations. I have no experience. I know one thing. I know that God is good and that he's in control and this isn't an accident. Okay, we've been praying for this. So I say, is she safe? Yep, she's safe. She's going to be okay. Good, I'm going to get off work in a couple hours. Let's try to find a place for her. I'll I'll speed up the conversation for you a little bit as it goes on. She ends up having some relatives that she can stay with. Her mom, who unfortunately has followed, she's following in her mom's footsteps in this. So we're not sure how good that is. But she's staying with with another relative. um, And she just starts coming around and hanging out with our community. Has dinner with us. We listen to her story. She hears our story. She's amazed by one of the guys sharing his story about this, this difficult relationship he has with his mom that's been restored because he, not that she's repented of anything that's happened, but because he's been changed by the gospel that he can accept her and love her regardless of what she does. And she, listening to this, just stares and says, you mean it's possible to be reconciled to someone who's hurt you? Like, there's hope for my relationship with my mom. So we started having parties, having her mom over. We had a birthday party for her mom. It was the first birthday party her mom had since she was a kid that didn't involve some kind of illegal activity. We just blessed her because that's what you do. That's what we do. So this girl comes to start talking about us as her family and introducing us to other people in her biological family as this is my family. It just became normative for her because that's just how we lived. Um, and that's how we live by God's grace. And it's not, I'm not talking about Jill and myself. I'm talking about a community of people, 10, eight to 10 people living this way together, openly accepting where she's coming from. She's, she's now a mother um, I, I don't know if she's gotten married yet, but she was engaged the last time that I spoke to her and has got her own a place and is stable. Like she's been changed. And, and I think that her son gets to grow up with a different view of family because of what God has been able to do in her life um, using a bunch of messed up individuals. So I want to ask you in just some of the remaining time that we have here, what, is, what does family look like? What kind of things do you think of when you think of family? What, what does family look like to you? Support, okay. Unconditional love, right on, yeah. Spending time together, good. So what might that look like? Staining a deck. <laughs> you remember C's story, yeah. <laughs> yeah, carpet, carpet on Saturday. That's what family does. What else? A meal. Families eat together, right? Uh, I want you to start to understand and see that we call each other, this is our family, our church family, or or just our family. I don't know why we necessarily have to make those distinctions. This is our family, and we gather on Sunday, but we don't really do a lot of the normal family things on a Sunday morning. We do some of them. 
you guys get to have time to talk together and eat together. But, I mean, in my family, we don't, like, sit in rows of chairs staring at one guy. Like, <laughs> it's kind of weird. Unless I've got something really important to bring to the rest of the family, right? It just doesn't happen that way. But I want, I want you to start thinking about that. Like, it's, it, what, what, what God's calling you to, who he's made you, isn't something that's super foreign to us. It's not something that we, we have to, like, get a whole list of plans and ideas. We just live normal, everyday lives with other people. See, he gives us this identity as disciples, as family, as missionaries, and as servants. And the thing is, you don't have individual identities. That's your identity, all of those four things together as a disciple. So you can't really separate them, and they're going to bleed into each other. So I'm going to ask you, what might it look like to live like a family of missionaries? Rather than individual missionaries going out and doing your thing, what does it look like to be a family? Pray together? Argue together? What's the purpose of a missionary? What does a missionary do? Make disciples. So how are we going to be a family? What might it look like to be a family who makes disciples together? Discipling one another. Discipling others. I like to think of it as discipling people to Christ and discipling people in Christ. We all need the same gospel. I always struggle with sharing stories of things that I've experienced because I'm, I don't want to come... I may never get to speak to you guys again. And you might think, wow, that, that Gino is pretty full of himself. He's got some stories about it. But I got about three times as many failure stories. They just don't fly very well on a Sunday morning. Um, <laughs> Because they usually end with me in tears and repenting sackcloth and ashes, the whole deal. So, so I, I mean, don't, don't, I'm just sharing those things because they're ways that I've been learning and I'm in process on this journey with you, learning what it is to live like family and to be missionaries together um, and, and not just do it as an individual because God, God loves you too much to let you do that. He, he wants you to do it together. Aaron, you were saying something up there is an action that's taken, but you don't have to have the huge plan. I love how, how C says it. He says that you don't need to know the master plan, but you need to know that the master has a plan, and you just have to ask what's next. I had a, a, had a neighbor who used to see our, our family dinners every Wednesday night that we would have for a while, and I, I got close with this guy. Um, and he, he finally, every time he'd go out and smoke a cigarette, he'd come over and knock on my door, and that's when we'd have our like five minutes together each night. And uh, one night, though, he just came pounding on the door while there were people there and came out. And I'll, I'll spare the language because it was Philly. But um, he, <laughs> he, said, he said, Gino, sir. No, that's not what I said. How, he's like, how come you have so many people in your house every week and I can't get anyone to come over to my house? And, and I thought, like you just said, that just reminded me of that, that it's the spirit who's opening Tony's eyes to see that there's something going on here that he desires, that his heart desires. So the, the wise response I had was, well, have you asked anyone? <laughs> and, yeah, and he said, Saturday, my daughter's first birthday, will you guys come over to celebrate? Heck yeah, we will. And he said, all right. That wasn't hard, Tony, was it? He goes, no, that was a lot easier than I thought. But it was, it was spurred out of an observation of what God, I, I believe, was doing around him. But there's, there's a purpose for this that I do want to tell you um, that Peter gives us in this passage. 
In in verses 11 and 12, he says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Gentiles are are thought of as the, the unbelieving people at that time. So what he's saying is, that because you're family and you get to live this way, and he also mentions the other identities, but we don't have time to talk about that in, the, in that same passage in, in verses 8, 9, and 10. Um, but because we, live, we get to live this way, we, we conduct ourselves, we get to conduct ourselves in the front of an unbelieving world so that they might not just think that we're great, but so that they'll think our God is great. That, that's the point of this, is, is God's glory. So, how we conduct ourselves in front of an unbelieving world. The same guy, Tony, I'm close with. Um, our, our, our row home in the city was on a corner, so it would go front to back this way, and his was the first house on the end, so we kind of butted up against each other that way. And we had our backyard, which was like a, a four by ten piece of concrete, that, that we all shared our trash cans in there. That's what we did. So it was a fly-infested area um, because he, could, he didn't have access to get his trash. He would have to carry it through his house, and they had a bunch of kids, and that just wasn't the right thing to do. Someone had put an illegal fence. Anyway, the point is, one night um, or the morning, I wake up, and there's like a mattress and sheets and stuff in there, and Tony's freaking out, like, freaking out. And he had also thrown some other stuff behind another building where these guys were living that are part of our community. And he's tell- he's, he, is, he obviously hasn't slept. They had bed bugs. And freaked out and took the bed and everything out and just threw it into our backyard and, and our neighbor's backyard. And I'm thinking, that probably isn't the best thing to do with that, but I don't really know. Um, so, but my concern, honestly, because, of, because God is gracious, was for Tony. Because I I know that he's not stupid and that he did that for a reason. And it was because there was tension in his marriage and with the, with the situation, it was, it was getting pretty elevated and he just wanted to take care of his wife and kids and he just acted and followed instructions rather than thinking wisely. And he was broken about it. This is a hard guy and he was near tears and, and just apologizing. I'm so sorry. I didn't know what to do. And I'm like, man, it's okay. Whatever happens, happens. Like, I mean, I'm, I'm okay with that. And I really, I really was. Um, my, my, my buddy from our missional community, he wasn't, though. He wasn't okay with it when he saw the stuff in his backyard. And he came over. And let's say he didn't conduct himself honorably in front of the unbelieving Gentile. Um, he, he had some words for him, which surprised me because that's not in character for this guy. And I didn't know what was going to happen, if there was going to be a fight between you know two guys that I consider close friends, um, or what, but Tony didn't do anything, and my buddy didn't, he just kind of stormed off, and Tony was like, he, he's right, that was the wrong thing to do, um, but wow, I'm, I'm really not trying to hurt anyone here, and I said, it's okay, it's okay, we'll take, this is going to be okay, so I follow my buddy out, and I just look at him, and I say, come on, man, I know what you're saying, like, look, the stuff's all over my house, we don't know what's going to happen, but but you know that like, if this is the form of suffering that we get to take, man, praise God, this isn't a huge deal. Like, it's not that big. And, I, and, I, and he, he was still kind of elevated and kind of started to talk back to me. And I just looked at him and I said, man, I, I, this is the spirit. And he said something along the lines of, 
you know, I know your story, bro. I know, I know where you've come from, and I know what God's rescued you from, and you know that it's true in your life, and this is nothing. And Jesus is worth taking this hit for someone else so that he might see who he is. And he's like, he just looks at me, and he got a big smile on his face, and he walked right back past me to Tony. He's like, I know what I need to do. And he went and he repented to my neighbor for his attitude and for his actions, and he said, let's, let's take care of this. And we ended up having a huge community project of like burning the mattress, and Jill called the, the city to find out what happened. We took care of the problem together. Uh, but in the process of that, my neighbor got to see someone maybe not respond in a way that we would want to, but he got to repent, and he got to see something even bigger, that, that God is, is still good, and that he has a relationship with the Father through Christ that is so true that he can actually confess when he's wrong. And that was a huge learning experience for me, because I want to be right all the time, and I don't want to share when I'm wrong, and my buddy was wrong, and everyone knew it, and he gladly proclaimed that he was wrong, because he knew that that would display the gospel to this guy, and it did. I guess I want to leave you with this, this question, these two questions. Who, who is it that the Spirit is drawing you into family with? Who is it? I'm guessing they're here. <laughs> Part of them at least. And maybe some others who don't yet know the, the gospel. Because that's the second part of the question. With that family that the Spirit is, is drawing you to, who is it that you and your family are called to demonstrate and declare the good news to? And I really think that you should spend some time discussing that, praying about it, and just following. Like Aaron said, it's, it's the Spirit's mission. It's His deal. He wants this. He's going to equip you in everything that you need to see that done for the glory of the Father. So just step out in faith to ask Him what, what's next. Let's pray together. Father, You are exceedingly good to demonstrate and declare your goodness through your Son, that, that Jesus is the image of you, the invisible God, that we got to see him and we get to know you because of him, Lord. For those of us who are following you and longing to make you known in this world, uh, we just give you thanks for, for what you've done and that we don't have to live with masks on anymore, Lord, that we can be truly exposed and unashamed in front of you and in front of others, because you know us so intimately, yet you went to such lengths to have us back with you. Lord, I I pray that that would grip our hearts today, and that it would compel us to move out in faith to share that good news with other people. Because we, we try so hard in this world to make much of ourselves, to get things done ourselves, when we really, truly deep down, we all know that we're broken, and that we need help. That the same person who causes the brokenness and the problems in our lives is not going to be able to fix the problems in our lives, that we need an outside influence. We need a mediator. We need a redeemer. And you graciously send your son to do that work, Lord. So I pray that as we are reminded that we are family, that we are sent ones, missionaries, and that we are servants of you and others, Lord, that we would demonstrate and declare your gospel to people in such a way that this community would come to know that there is a living God. He is real and he is here to rescue and redeem people, to bring about restoration for his glory, Lord. I pray that you would get much glory from this family 
and that they would experience much joy in following you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.